Trump's greatest promise, left behind for the Republican Party, was the ideal of a working-class party that stood up for cultural conservatives while pushing towards a more progressive or centrist center on economic policy, bringing an alignment of interests between class, geography, and party lines. This is a promise of an overwhelming future, big shoes to fill if you can ignore all of the gaps in the storyline. However, those gaps in the story are exactly what make the modern-day Republican and Democratic parties, and it's not out of a lack of will that the Republicans have not yet become this Trumpian dream. Instead, it's out of a fact that they just don't need to. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus, demystifying politics, media, and culture for all who seek a rational way out. In a YouGov poll just a few weeks after Biden's COVID stimulus bill passed, 50% of Republican voters thought that their representatives voted for that latest stimulus bill. In reality, every single one of them had voted against it. In Florida, one of the greatest stories was that it went at a surprisingly high margin for Trump, including gains in the Latino and African American vote. At the same time, a statewide ballot measure, a direct vote on a policy, passed an increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. This, to many people who follow the party lines and the policies that divide them, would see this as a stark contradiction. Not all voters, though. In fact, 30% of Republican voters thought that Republicans were in favor of raising the minimum wage, something that isn't true about nearly every elected Republican official. Well, how can this possibly be? Why are people out here believing objectively false things about votes or platform positions? The answer is a concerted media strategy that disconnects policy issues, that disconnects accountability and factual evidence in favor of a partisan narrative. This phenomenon isn't unique to the Republican Party either. Making similar polls on issues such as campaign finance reform or union rights, the population expects much more from the Democratic Party than the average representative believes in whatsoever. On cultural lines, it's actually the exact opposite. Of course, you can argue about the importance of these issues, or whether Republicans or Democrats truly fight for them at all. But simply upon inspecting the positions of the candidates versus the opinions that the public thinks elected officials hold, it shifts in the opposite direction. Moderates and Democrats believe that Democrats are much more culturally moderate. Republicans believe their elected representatives are even further to the cultural right. Some of this could just be self-interest. After all, these shifts exactly align with public opinion themselves. Public opinion is to the left of the average Republican with regards to economic issues, 
such as the aforementioned minimum wage, or for other issues such as healthcare. On the other hand, the average American is significantly more culturally conservative or socially conservative than the average elected representative. So there are ample reasons why this belief might skew one way or the other. However, the question that echoes once again is why this continues to happen. Why are parties not immediately gravitating towards and seizing the opportunities that lie right in front of them? With the Democratic Party going further economically left and culturally center, or the Republican Party going further culturally right and economically center. You could argue that Trump symbolically, at the very least, took a step in that direction. With the post-Trump fallout, it looks like the Republicans are not too eager to do anything to continue that transformation. The answer is in those polling numbers that I showed at the very beginning of the episode. Republicans don't need to move in a more populist direction because their voters already believe that they're in that direction. The same can be said for Democrats. And if you paid close attention to previous episodes, then you'll remember the statistics that showed that media organizations increasingly compound their ability to avoid public opinion, putting barriers in the way of individual journalists to even be tied to basic realities, such as polling. What this means is that the media and political institutions, such as political parties, have no necessity to be responsible to each of these voters. Let's make this one step more visceral. If you're the average American, you've probably turned on Fox News, MSNBC, or CNN within the past week, and you'll see a distinct archetype of coverage from each of these cable networks that are strikingly resembling each other. Particularly in opinion shows during prime time, the hypocrisy critique takes front and center stage. It's often the most resonant, attacking the opposing party without the baggage of having to make a moral or factual case. It goes quite simply. Here is one thing that the opposing party said. Here is another thing that the opposing party said that may seem contradictory given other information. How awful is that? They can't even get their lines straight. A strong attack, to be sure, but what does this actually do in terms of advancing a party's case, moving towards an ideological, moral, or policy direction? The answer is simple, absolutely nothing. If you had a constant campaign with regards to a direct issue, tying an issue to the allegiance of a party or a movement, then you can create real public opinion change and an association between a possible candidate or movement and that policy, obviously. This was executed successfully on several occasions, including by Bernie Sanders for Medicare for All, his universal healthcare policy, by the Tea Party 
or taxed enough already party, a movement within the Republican Party to push for stronger controls on the deficit, as well as most recently by Trump with his Stop the Steal conspiracy theory. What all these have in common is that they ask for real deliverables. Sanders asks for the Senate, the House, and eventually the President to sign Medicare for All into law. The Tea Party asked for some things that they accomplished, including removing earmarks and making stronger controls on when the House and Senate can increase the budget, but also other promises such as lowering overall spending in the long term, something that they did not live up to whatsoever during the Trump administration. And of course, Trump pushed to overturn the election, something which I am very glad has failed. What each of these ties do is that they create a dependence for sustainability, at least partially, on the success of these individual points. In other words, it creates a self-correcting mechanism that is dependent on reality, or at least the part of reality of whether a bill passes or not. This isn't the case with the majority of coverage, particularly with attack ads or what are essentially attack ads that are run by the partisan wings of either of major journalistic outlets. Using cheap attacks like personal scandals, which to be fair matter to some degree, but also using plenty of the aforementioned hypocrisy tactic, it's fairly easy to string together a case to why you should never vote for an opposing party without mentioning a single deliverable that your own party is actually offering. To further hammer in the nail, this often reeks of a hypocrisy hypocrisy. How ironic. And unlike with those original cheap attacks, there's actually a point in bringing this to light. Essentially, what you have in party ideologies is a ham-fisted clobbering together of various groups of voters and power brokers. This has always been the case throughout history. The ideological purity that is falsely cast on figures such as Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or Ronald Reagan are simply illusions. Neither of these three, nor politicians in the history of the United States or politicians in the history of the world, are people who are singularly driven by their commitment towards ideological purity. No, instead, all of them got elected, and this included weighing opposing values, recognizing when certain issues were more in favor of a different ideology. This includes Reagan on drunk driving, FDR on brokering specific handouts with regards to earmarks and with regards to other interests in order to get larger packages passed. And it includes Abraham Lincoln equivocating early on the issue he's most known for, ending slavery. What this means is that it should be assumed as a baseline that there's going to be at least a small amount of incoherence within a party's policy. That's because a party's policy isn't meant to be something that is purely aligned in serving one ideological interest. It's meant to serve a much wider variety, and so 
you'll get some policies that are beneficial to some, and some that are beneficial to others, possibly contradictory. And that this has always been true for the Republican Party, for the Democratic Party, and essentially every political regime in history. So, criticizing this essential inevitability is, in reality, a description of nothing more than the daily passage of politics. Not only that, but this isn't something that we would want to eradicate at all. As I said before, political parties are formed by coalitions, and if only one purist ideology is being served, then the odds are the majority of that party is not being served either. In fact, this absolutism is a recipe for the exact same polarization and authoritarian creep that both parties are undergoing. You already know by now though, that they are serving a purpose. And that purpose is to build an emotional connection or calcification towards one political party or the other, without the accountability that a policy tie provides. This exact same disconnect is why loyalty to these partisan media outlets is so high, and in fact is most likely exactly the purpose. In other words, by creating superficial attacks, like the hypocrisy critique, you're able to create countless amounts of content for a news organization while not promising anything and creating increasing fervor to consume more content. This plays in an even more damaging way with the idea of rational ignorance. In some cases, rational ignorance can simply be a good decision. The most common example is something along the following lines. You run a small or medium-sized business, and you realize that every month or so, $10 is missing from one corporate account. Now, you could trace this down, maybe it ends up being a clerical error, maybe it ends up being an employee that is illegally skimming funds. But this will take hours of time, time which could probably be spent making hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. That's a terrible return on investment, and in fact, it costs you more to figure this out in terms of time than it would actually give you in terms of money saved. Then it's more rational to ignore the problem, at least if it doesn't get worse. However, the same types of decisions can be made implicitly with regards to ideologies. One problem that I've talked about is how difficult it is to convince people from one side or the other that a problem is real. Often, people on the left acknowledge the spread of racial conspiracy theories in positions of power. They just see it as radicals that won't have that much impact in the long term. Similarly, many people on the right, at least in private, will acknowledge the danger of Trump's authoritarianism and demagoguery. They don't see this as anything near as consequential as the corresponding threats on the left. In other words, the debate is not one over right or wrong, 
but rather over salience and attention. What should we be paying attention to? What should we be dealing with? And this makes the rational ignorance very easy to be skewed. That's because if you've already invested a lot of emotion and time into one partisan narrative, let alone if you've invested money supporting a candidate or even possibly participated in politics yourself, then those same ideas of rational ignorance apply. Here, instead of being an amount of money that you're putting in versus getting out, it's an amount of time or an amount of satisfaction. It's not fun to acknowledge you're wrong. And particularly in many of these superficial cases, there's no actual policy consequence to not changing sides. After all, if politics is purely superficial, if we take this to the extreme and all of these critiques are not based in reality, are not based on policy or even morality, then why not continue fighting for a team that you're already invested in? Of course this is a caricature and a much more extreme state of the US than in reality. Thankfully, we still have candidates that are campaigning based off of policies, such as real cultural laws that can be signed in order to create incentives for one side or the other, for things like COVID stimulus, etc, etc. Not all is lost, because, guess what, people do respond to policy preferences as well, particularly swing voters, those who are not already aligned with one party or the other. And here is the central tension, in my view, of politics moving forward, whether it will be a question of superficiality and of media control, or whether it will be a question of policy. One last point I want to leave you with now is the interaction between this effect and insularization and polarization, two forces that further drive the partisans of either side towards their extremes. A quick reminder, polarization is essentially the increasing partisan divide and drift away from the center. Insularization is the same phenomenon in a closed-off clique, including in a company or a political party, one where self-reinforcing dynamics drive people in these insular groups to further polarize and compete to become the most extreme and the most unreliant on factual evidence. The superficial media strategy does something that very clearly enables these two things. It removes reinforcement. It removes a dependence on measurable data, or even on a moral position, and instead makes everything purely partisan. Think back to the voters who thought that representatives for the Republican Party voted for the latest stimulus, or for those who thought that Republicans were in favor of raising the minimum wage and their analogs in the Democratic Party. These are exactly the same types of behaviors that lead to, for example, journalists not being fired for blatant lies, factual errors, and spreading of conspiracy theories. So the impact of this phenomenon is quite clear. 
What can we do about it? Unfortunately, not a lot. We can switch to alternative news sources. But as you're listening to this podcast, I think that you're already doing a fairly good job. You can also share these ideas with your friends, either by sharing this podcast, which I would greatly appreciate, or simply by telling them about it, possibly even without mentioning the pod by name. That's perfectly fine too. The reason why I always emphasize this point is not simply because I want this podcast to grow, although obviously that's a factor as well, but because particularly with the issues of insularization, it's so much easier to prevent rather than to undo. Radicalization is often a one-way function. Once beliefs that are contradictory to facts, that don't care about factual evidence are adopted, it's nearly impossible to actually undo that adoption. But those with the tools in order to combat this type of radicalization and this type of falsehood are more well-equipped to reject it. That's why your help in sharing the message, in propagating these clear, neutral principles and critiques of both parties and of political behavior writ large, is important whether you want to prevent your own party from collapsing towards malicious behavior or whether you want a more sane opposition that you can actually work with in real, fact-based terms. And, as always, if you're helping communicate these ideas, especially if you're doing so with your own understanding of your community and those around you, then as always, thank you.